Welcome to our service this morning. It's nice to see you here. Our theme for the first um, songs that we're going to sing are songs about God's glory and what a glorious morning it is for October 2nd, which is also a glorious day because it's Emily's birthday and it's Karen's birthday. And it's sunshiny outside. So let's stand and worship God together. Oh. 
again because there's one more bar and then it changes keys sorry <laughs> okay we're just gonna go from the G at where it turns into the second one piano player that could play by ear that totally would have worked out but Who else could make every king bow down? 
such praises. What other splendor outshines the sun? What other majesty rules with justice? Only a with you. Let's read the call to worship together. It's from Psalm 92 verses 1 and 2. And let's read together. 
It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to the Most High. It is good to proclaim your unfailing love in the morning and your faithfulness in the evening. If you'd like to bow with me and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather to reflect on your goodness and, how, and your faithfulness to us. We ask that you guide us in our worship of you this morning as we hear from your word. We thank you that we have Pastor Glenn to teach and preach it to us. We also thank you that we can praise you in singing and we can speak to you through prayer and also uh, we can worship you in our giving. We pray that you would guide us in all of those things this morning and we thank you that we can do that as a family of believers. In Jesus' name we give thanks. Amen. We have a special privilege here uh, this morning uh, in that we're going to get a report from our camp and the ministry of our camp this summer, and we get to have some special people um, give it to us. Uh, Andrew and Michelle Weeb are with us this morning from the camp. They're our camp's newest employees. Uh, he has taken on the role of maintenance, and uh, I'll tell you as a Official job description, I can't remember it, very job title. <laughs> and uh, the camp just hired him on full-time uh, just about a month ago or so, and uh, so he will be seeking to raise his personal support as well, and uh, and as well as he's here today to give us an uh, update on a bit of the summer ministry of the camp, and um, uh, I was going to say something else. Can't remember what it was. <laughs> Andrew Weep. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Andrew Weeb. Come, some people call me AJ. Doesn't really matter. Um, I'm here with my wife Michelle. Um, so, as Glenn said, we are. I'm officially starting full time in the beginning of November. Um, I'm going to be the facilities and maintenance manager. So, I've grown up going to camp. Manitou's always kind of been my second home. Seth used to be the youth pastor of my home church in Saskatoon, so there's a little connection there. Um, so I brought a couple slides just to show some stats over the summer and just how awesome of a summer we had and just how much God's blessed us over the summer. So, oh, some of it's missing. Wow, that's hard to read. Okay, but there's lots of stats. We had quite a few number of campers come through. It was, I think, a little below our 2019 year, but it was still a very awesome year. We had, I think the number was around 25 new Christians come and pronounce their faith, which is awesome to hear. Um, yeah, so we had that. We had some coming staff that returned over the last few years, and then we had some new staff come and join us from all over the place. But, so, summer was awesome. We appreciate all the supporting churches that have come even you guys that have come to teen camp and serve physically, and even just for you guys that have kept us in prayer. Um, I'll share my job specifically, I'll share a little bit about because it's a new role. Um, my job specifically, my job description is taking care of the facilities and maintenance of around the camp and kind of organizing work bees and the volunteers over the summer, the camp maintenance crew and work bees, and kind of help disciple and kind of grow the maintenance team a little bit in that way. Um, as Glenn said, I'm going to be a full-time missionary, so 
I got to raise my wage as Seth and Jade did too. So if you guys are willing or are interested, um, there's multiple different ways you can support. Um, you guys can go on the One Hope Canada website and then go through there or you can mail a check or whatever you guys want. Um, I appreciate prayer. I appreciate financial in any way and so does the camp. Um, we appreciate all your help. We want to thank you for volunteering and doing everything of that. So, thank you. I look forward to meeting all of you guys. And we'll hang around a little bit after the service if you guys have any questions or just want to say hey. And, yes, I'm Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. And, uh, yeah, if you... Uh, if you would like to be involved in Andrew's uh, personal support, he's a missionary, so he needs to raise his raise his support. So uh, we, as a camp, have have uh, I said board of the Manitou Lake Bible Camp. So yeah, we we've, we've already set a wager. Uh, until he raises that full support, that's going to come out of, of course, the camp funds. Uh, so if any of you are interested in supporting. Supporting uh, AJ and his ministry as a facilities manager, I've I've pushed the camp for a, a number of years. We need that. We just we just do, and so AJ is fulfilling that role. And so to me, that's a that's something that we we as a camp have have needed for a while. And uh, it's it's great to have him on board. And he serves a very important role, and it'll help make the camp just run so much smoother. We already saw this this last summer, when all of a sudden at the dining hall we had no water. How do you serve meals and do dishes with no water? AJ, we got no water. AJ comes running. Ten minutes, we had water, so it was all good to go. So that kind of person on camp is is vitally important, and uh, so yeah, it's a good ministry. It's a necessary ministry. So I want to encourage you. If this God lays it all at all in your heart to support AJ. You can talk to him later, and uh, there's there's ways to do that. So thanks, you guys, for coming. Good to have you with us. We're uh, sorry that uh, so happens that this Sunday is a Sunday where a lot of our church people have. A lot of things going on in their lives, so we're not a huge, most of our, or not most, but a lot of our church family are not here this morning, so uh, apologies for that, just kind of the way it worked out, but uh, let's, let's pray for Andrew and uh, Michelle. Lord God, I, I just ask that you would bless Andrew and Michelle in their ministry. Thank you for calling them here, thank you for, for the role that has opened up and the camp feeling now that they're in a position to be able to take this step in, in hiring them, and uh, Lord, I just pray that they would help them to You'd help them to raise the support necessary. I know that's not an easy job for any missionary to, to raise their personal support. And yet it's something that uh, has to be done. So, Lord, I just pray that you would help them to do that. And bless them, bless their ministry, bless their marriage, uh, bless the relationship with the camp. And, Lord, I just pray that uh, it would be just another part of the team that we could go forward with your grace and power to touch the lives of those kids. We thank you for those 25 or so kids that came to know the Lord this summer. Thank you for six weeks of camp where we were not full, but pretty close, and in some weeks, and some weeks were full, and we thank you for that. Thank you for the time we could have with those kids to minister to them and, and help them to grow in their faith, and for the LITs and cabin leaders and that uh, and in their own personal journeys and how camp was able to feed into that. And so, Lord, we continue to pray for your blessing on our camp. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremy.
I will be doing the scripture reading this morning. It's coming from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 35. Acts 15, 1 to 35. And I will be reading from the NIV. And I apologize if I get a little froggy up here, but it is what it is. Anyways, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed, this, <clears throat> showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. <clears throat> the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The word of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are returning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judea, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds 
by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jeremy, for reading that passage this morning, and let's uh, ask God's guidance as we look into it. Lord, your word to us is always good, it's always relevant, it always has something for us. And uh, Lord, how I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to listen, and that uh, you, Lord, would come through the Holy Spirit to, to teach us the lessons that are here for us. And uh, that would be open to it, and we'd listen to it, and you'd guide us. Help me, Lord, to speak it as you would have it spoken, and it'll be you speaking this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Decisions, decisions, decisions. Some days when it feels like you just have to make one decision after another. And for those of you like me who hate making decisions, (laughs) that can get very draining. Making good decisions is important. How do you make good decisions? Or how do you choose who will make the decision? Or despite your best attempt at being responsible and making good decisions, sometimes in the practicality of life and how things work out, and it just ends up someone else making the decisions. Not that you intended it that way, but that kind of seems what it ends up. The story is told of a home where a telemarketer phoned. And the lady of the home answered the phone, and the telemarketer said, I'd like to uh, talk to the person who makes the final purchasing decisions for your family. And the lady replied, I'm sorry, that person is still at kindergarten and won't be home for another hour. (laughs) Man, that was funny when I found that joke, but... Obviously, you don't think so. so. (laughs) But making good decisions is important because it has such long-reaching effects on life. Some decisions are so significant that it will affect your life years, years down the road, either for the good or for the bad. Some of you may remember that uh, 
country song that came out a little over 20 years ago now, I would guess, uh, called Choices. It was written by singer-songwriter Billy Yates. I think he co-wrote it with somebody else. I don't know who the other person is. But it became a big hit for George Jones in 1999. Uh, those of you who know anything about the life of George Jones know that this song very aptly describes uh, his life and his battle with alcoholism. Uh, the song that describes uh, this person's discovery of alcohol and, and that he really liked it and he never turned it down and although he's very much warned about the dangers and now years later he's living and dying with the consequences of the choices he made. At any rate, the chorus of the song goes, I've had choices since the day I was born. There were voices telling me right from wrong. If I had listened, I wouldn't be here today living and dying with the choices. I've made. It's a great song. Maybe next year at Teen Camp at Coffee Household. <laughs> I'll sing this song. <laughs> Just a great song. Making good decisions is important in all of life. And likely there is no arena where it is more important to make good decisions than in the Church of Jesus Christ. And as you look at the history of the church over the past 2,000 years, there are periods of time in there that are quite dark. The church of Jesus Christ as a whole did things that were so wrong. And the reason they took those wrong courses of action because they failed to make good decisions. They lost sight of what the church was supposed to be about. They forgot who was to be the head of the church. They made choices based on power-seeking and money, money-seeking and worldly thinking instead of spiritual thinking, and it had very bad results. And the Church of Jesus Christ as a whole is not free from that yet. It's still going on today in parts of the church all around the world. And it gives non-Christians, the non-Christian world, a bad impression of Christianity. We're resuming today our study of the book of Acts, and we come today to chapter 15, we haven't been in Acts since June 26, uh, when we looked at the last part of chapter 14. So just by way of quick review, the church at Antioch, that's the Syrian city of Antioch, north of Judea, Jerusalem, by quite a, quite a piece, uh, that church in Antioch came to be a very growing and thriving church. Many people coming to faith in Jesus through the ministry of that church. They had a number of gifted teachers in that church. It was a thriving church. Jews and Gentiles coming to know the Lord. And Jesus, through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, directed this church to send Paul and Barnabas, that was two of their most gifted preachers, teachers, prophets, Holy Spirit directed them to send Paul and Barnabas out to the mission field to travel abroad and bring the message of the gospel to the Gentile world, which they did. So chapter 13 and 14. Chapter 13, the beginning, describes how they sent Paul and Barnabas out and then chapter 13 and 14 describe, or record for us Paul and Barnabas' journey first to the island of Cyprus and the two main cities there of that island and then to the Roman province of Galatia and several of the cities in there that they visited. In each place that they came to, they went first to the Jewish synagogue in that city, preached the gospel to the Jews of that synagogue, that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied by the people, by the, sorry, by the prophets of the Old Testament, and that Jesus fulfilled 
the Old Testament law by dying and rising again. And that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sins that the animal sacrificial system pictured and pointed to. And now that Messiah has come and was sacrificed for us, his death is the final payment for our sins and salvation from the penalty of sins is through Jesus alone and given freely to all who believe in Jesus and place their faith in him. That was a message preached in every synagogue that they went to. And the result in every city was the same. As they preached in the synagogue, some of the Jews accepted the message of the gospel and came to the Lord. Many did not. Many of the Jews in the synagogue did not. And so in time, Paul and Barnabas got themselves kicked out of the synagogue. Happened every city. They got kicked out of the synagogue. So they started preaching the gospel to the Gentiles of that city. And many of the Gentiles responded and became Christians. And that stirred up the anger of the Jews and they started to unleash some harsh persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the city. And so then they went to the next city. And the cycle was repeated. That happened over and over again. Every city they went to. That's recorded in chapters 13 and 14. The end of chapter 14 records that after going through some of the cities of Galatia, uh, Paul and Barnabas returned back to their home church in Antioch. And uh, that was the church that sent them out. And they reported to them all that God had done on their journey and how many had accepted the Lord and there was a group of believers in every city that they went to now. So there was great rejoicing in that home church of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. So that brings us today to chapter 15 where we want to look today. A problem arose. And it was regarding the issue of how Jewish Christians were to relate to and treat the Gentile Christians. There were two choices. And it was a serious issue. Very strong feelings and convictions on both sides. A decision needed to be made. And it was a momentous decision. This decision would set the church of Jesus Christ on a course that would guide it for the rest of time. The decision made here in chapter 15 directly affects us as Christians today. So let's first go through the events of chapter 15 so we can all see what's going on and then we'll make the application to us today which has to do with how we should make decisions in a church. So verse 1 tells us that the, there's a group of men that came from Judea. That's that southern province of Israel where Jerusalem was. They came to Antioch and began teaching the Christians of the church there at Antioch that unless the Gentile Christians were circumcised according to the law of, the Mo of Moses, they cannot be saved. Well, we need to stop here and take some time to consider what was going on and why. Uh, first, these men were freelancers, uh, if you like. They had not been sent by anyone. Uh, they were doing this on and teaching this on, on their own, on their own hook. Second, the reason for them teaching this was their very strong conviction of what defined a person of God. These would have been very strong and committed Jews, and later on we learn that they were Pharisees who had become Christians. But they had been taught and they had believed for thousands of years that Jews were God's chosen people and they were to be separate from the world around them. And the sign that they were people of God was circumcision. And as such, they were to be separate and different from the people who were not Jews. 
big thing of that, as I said, was the mark of circumcision. And included in that, and this comes out a little bit later in this chapter, were laws of cleanness and uncleanness, particularly in regards to foods. For a person of God to come into close contact with an unclean person was just not acceptable. So eating with a Gentile, for example, was just not possible. Gentiles didn't have those same convictions about foods. They were handling and eating and preparing and coming in contact with all kinds of foods that were unclean to the Jewish way of thinking. And so to eat with them was to make yourself unclean. That's the background of these Jews. That's their thinking. They're Christians. They believed in Jesus being the perfect sacrifice for sin and they placed their faith in Jesus as their Savior. But they didn't see that in their immaturity. They didn't see that as changing anything else. And if the Gentiles came to faith in Jesus, that's good, but becoming a person of God meant circumcision for the men, and as we'll see later in the passage, it meant kept keeping the clean and unclean laws, especially regarding foods. And they felt that this was necessary for salvation. So in addition to placing your faith in Jesus, um, you had to do these things if you wanted to be saved. After all, in the Old Testament, a Gentile could person could come to God and be welcomed as a person of God. That was possible, but it required them becoming a Jewish proselyte, complete with circumcision and obeying all the Old Testament laws. So that's the mindset of these Jewish people who came from Judea and started teaching this stuff. Uh, their definition of what a person of God was, was really, they felt, under attack. And in a way, you can understand it. When something has been ingrained in your mind as right and wrong for so many generations, it's hard to wrap your mind around something else, around anything different. But verse 2 tells us that Paul and Barnabas quite strongly disagreed with them and debated with them on this issue. Now that Jesus, the promised Messiah, had come and had died and rose again, he fulfilled all of those Old Testament ceremonial and ritualistic laws and what they were about. They were all bent to point to the Messiah and to be a picture of what he would do when he came. And now that he has come, salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. Which in reality it always has been. And so the debate and the dissension went on. And so the church at Antioch decided to send a delegation to the church of Jerusalem. That's where the apostles were. That's where the apostles, which used to be known as the disciples, the ones that had been with Jesus and heard his teaching for the whole time Jesus was ministering on earth. They're now called apostles. I've explained that before. Um, that's where the apostles were there, Jerusalem. And that's where Jerusalem was kind of the lead church in Christianity at this time. Um, so they decided to bring this issue, this matter, to the, to the rest of the apostles and to the elders of the church of Jerusalem for a decision. A decision had to be made. And that's what they did. They sent Paul and Barnabas with some others to Jerusalem to look into the matter. So they went to Jerusalem. And it says they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria and took the time to relate to those churches what God had done in their missionary journey to Cyprus and Galatia. They got to Jerusalem, verse 4, and were received by the whole church, apostles and the elders and the brethren, so the whole church. And they reported to them what God had done on their missionary journey and uh, the issue came up again. Certain Christians that were from the sect of the Pharisees said it was necessary that these Gentile converts be circumcised and directed to obey the law of Moses. 
So verse 6, the apostles and the elders convened a meeting among themselves to look into this matter. To discuss it, to think it through, to seek the mind of God, to come to a decision as to what God would have them do. So verse 7, the debate went on. Sounds like it was a lengthy debate as you read verse 7. Uh, likely a vigorous debate. But after this debate had been going on for a time, it says Peter stood up and addressed them. And he recounted for them what God had done with, when the Gentiles first heard the gospel. He first said, you all know that God made the choice, Jesus made the choice, that it was through my mouth that the Gentiles would first hear the gospel. That's recorded back, by the way, in Acts chapter 10, if you want to read it. Um, and then Peter recounted what God had done when the Gentiles first heard the gospel, uh, Acts 10. Um, he preached the gospel of Jesus to them, and they responded by placing their faith in Jesus, and immediately when they did that, they received the Holy Spirit, just as they, the disciples did on the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. So Peter concludes then, if God accepts the Gentiles on the basis of their faith in Jesus alone, as evidenced by giving them the Holy Spirit, then obviously it's not necessary for them to be circumcised and obey these ceremonial laws of Moses for them to be saved and welcomed into the family of God. Peter's words there in verse 10 are interesting. Uh, now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why do we want to impose a burden of keeping the law of Moses on these Gentile believers, a law which we ourselves as Jews could never keep? And that was one of the key points of the Old Testament law. God was showing people, if you want to be righteous in my sight, this is what you have to do. And it was a law that the Jews themselves could never keep. That was the point. You can't be righteous before God on your own by any kind of law keeping. You just can't. You're sinful people. You cannot be perfect. You're going to sin. That's why we need a Savior. That's why Jesus came. So why do we ask the Gentile converts to do that? That's what Peter was saying. Why do you put God to the test? Meaning, why do you mistrust the guidance of God by going against his will, basically? Put God to the test. So Peter concludes then in verse 11, We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they also are. Well, when Peter said that, that kind of quieted down uh, those strict-minded Pharisees. And they just kind of stopped talking. They listened. and Paul and Barnabas reported what God had done through them and their missionary journal, journey and how God had accepted the Gentiles on the basis of their faith in Jesus alone without having to be circumcised or obeying those ceremonial laws of Moses. And apparently all were convinced at this point. So James... Uh, they're talking about uh, this is the half-brother of Jesus. He came to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem there shortly after, um, or fairly soon in the book of Acts, James became the leader of the church of Jerusalem. Uh, James kind of took the floor and he summed it up and gave his conclusion there in verses 13 to 22. You can skim it. His summation was that in light of what Peter reported, about God accepting the Gentiles on the basis of their faith in Jesus alone, and in light of the fact that the Old Testament scriptures themselves teach this very thing, 
that God would reach out to the Gentile world and call out a people for himself from the Gentiles. He, James quotes there from Amos chapter 9, verse 11 to 12. In light of that, James says, we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to Jesus with these ceremonial laws of Moses. <coughs> we should write a letter to them, James says, asking them to abstain from certain things, uh, from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, or sexual immorality, as the NIV says, from what is strangled and from blood. And that's all. They do not have to be circumcised or obey any of the other ceremonial laws of Moses. And James says there in verse 21, the law of Moses is read in every, every Sabbath, in every synagogue around the world. That's not going to stop. I, I take, take that to mean that uh, James is saying that the law of Moses is in no danger of being forgotten about, or and the Gentiles have ample opportunity to learn the law of Moses. Uh, I think James is trying to put the hearts of those hardliners at ease with those words. So that was the decision, and it all agreed that this was the leading of God, and this was the direction of Jesus Christ to them on the matter. Excuse me. So they wrote the letter, which would be taken back to the church at Antioch to settle the issue there. And it is clear that this letter was meant for all Gentile converts to Christianity. The contents of the letter that was written is given there in verses 23 to 29. You can read it. It's pretty much the same as James' summation in verse 20 uh, with some introductory comments. Of note, perhaps, is verse 24, uh, which explains that the men that went from Judea to Antioch that were teaching that Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised and keep the Old Testament law. They had received no instruction from the apostles or the elders of the church of Jerusalem for doing what they did. They were on their own. They did that on their own hook. And then verse 28, I'm intrigued by that phrase where the letter says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And I think we can gather from this that they regarded the church as the vehicle of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit leading through them as believers, the church. And I kind of use the words of commentator F.F. F. Bruce here, but they were very much conscious that they were filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit was the author of the decision that they made. We could question why the Gentiles were asked to abstain from food contaminated by idols, from things strangled, and from blood. Those are Jewish food laws. Which sounded like from the debate, they decided Gentiles did not have to keep. So why was this included in the letter, asking the Gentiles to abstain from those things? The law regarding fornication or sexual immorality, that was a moral law, not a ceremonial one. Uh, Fornication is sin, according to the teaching of the Bible, all along. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach that that is sin. Uh, that wasn't a ceremonial law. It was a moral law for all people of all time. So the reason I believe that this is included, it, what's being recognized by the apostles and the elders of this Jerusalem council where this decision was made, was that the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, they're going to have to live together. If they're going to go to the same church, they're going to be fellowshipping together. 
which in all likelihood, considering the time and the culture, they would be eating together. So while no obeying these ceremonial law, food laws was not necessary for salvation at all, they were things that the Jewish Christians, given their background, would find quite offensive and would hinder the fellowship. And so for the betterment of the church and for the unity of the church and for the work of the church, if these Gentile Christians could avoid those things, it would really help keep things going smoothly. As for fornication, that was a moral law, but given the loose morals of those Gentile cities, which the Gentile Christians came out of, it was a lifestyle they would have been used to, and perhaps they didn't, because they're so used to it, saw it all the time, they maybe didn't consider it a fornication, a big deal uh, in their immaturity. But again, extremely offensive to the Jewish Christians who knew God's moral law. And it was sinful for the Gentiles as well. So it was felt that fornication as well needed to be emphasized in this letter. So that was a letter written by the church at Antioch. And it was delivered to the church at Antioch by Barnabas and Paul along with a couple of others. A man named Judas. I don't think we really know much anything else about him. And also a man named Silas. Silas will figure large uh, going forward in the book of Acts. The letter was delivered to the church in Antioch and uh, was received by them, it says, with much joy at what the letter contained. And with the delivery of the letter, Judas and Silas, they're both prophets, uh, given the gift of prophecy at this time, they, they gave the message that encouraged and strengthened this church. And that brings us to the end of the passage we want to look at this morning, to the end of verse 35. So what's the message here for us? This decision directed the future course of the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, that the fact that we are here in this church together and not following any particular food laws and not having to be circumcised is because of the decision reached here. So it's far-reaching. It directed the church from then on. The application is about decision-making. In particular, how should a church body go about making a decision regarding the work of the church? And we can glean some good guidelines in this from what happened here in this chapter. So let's look at it. We as Christians need to understand the significance of this decision reached here at this Jerusalem Church Council and how it applies to church today in making decisions. And we can understand that better by studying the process of this decision and the key considerations that guided their decision. So there's three key considerations here that I want to look at. Maybe there's more, but there's three that I want to look at. Number one, first key consideration, what is God clearly doing? What is God clearly doing? You saw as we went through this that what turned the debate was Peter's account of what God was clearly doing. God was accepting Gentiles by his grace upon their faith alone. As soon as they believed that Jesus was the Messiah and, placed, and that his death and resurrection was a payment for our sins and then placed their faith in Jesus for their salvation, immediately they received the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter said. That's what God is clearly doing. He saw it. Paul and Barnabas report the same thing. That's what they saw God doing with the Gentiles on their missionary journey. And what struck Peter, and this comes out back in chapter 10, and a bit here as well, was that they received the Holy Spirit 
in the same way that they, the Jews, received the Holy Spirit back on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Remember, they're up in that upper room and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. When Peter preached to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, same thing. The Holy Spirit fell upon them as soon as they placed their faith in Jesus. And so if the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit the same way the Jews did upon their faith, that is a clear indication that God has accepted those Gentiles as their own, as his own. And if God has accepted them on the basis of their faith alone without them being circumcised or obeying any ceremonial or ritualistic law of the Old Testament, then we need to as well, without imposing anything else on them. That's Peter's argument. And then Paul and Barnabas related what they saw in their missionary journey. We went through those events as we walked, worked through chapter 13 and 14. It's the same thing. God accepted the Gentiles as shown by the giving of the Holy Spirit upon the basis of their faith alone and not anything else. So this was a huge consideration for the apostles and the elders in making this decision. What was God clearly doing? And realizing that, they needed to make a decision that was in tune with what God was doing. And not one that would end up putting them at odds with what God was doing. Now, this was a bit of a unique situation, especially for those first Jewish Christians. A big change happened with the death and resurrection of Jesus. He fulfilled all those Old Testament laws of animal sacrifice and cleanness and uncleanness and foods and all that. Those ceremonial ritualistic laws. They had their place. Those laws had their place. And they were necessary until the time of Jesus. It pointed people, those laws pointed people to their need of a Messiah. But with the coming of Jesus and his fulfillment of those laws, it's no longer necessary. Especially for Gentiles coming to the Lord. The book of Galatians explains that all very, very well. If you have questions about that, read the book of Galatians where Paul explains that. But it was difficult for those first Jewish Christians to wrap their minds around that. But they needed to. And this decision reached here was a major decision in that regard that put the church on a direction that, would, that the church would take from then on. And it was the right decision. And a key guiding principle was to realize what God was doing and make a decision that would be in line with what God was doing. And that's important for us as well, as a church. When it comes to key decisions, we need to come to an understanding of what God's plan is and what God is doing in our world and what God wants to do in our world and in our society and our communities. We need to understand His plan and His agenda and make decisions that are in line with that. You see, it, it isn't about our agenda, or my agenda, or your agenda, or any particular group's agenda. It isn't about what any particular person or group would prefer. It isn't about what we find comfortable or uncomfortable. Or dare I say, what my personal convictions are, or yours if those convictions are based on personal comfort and preference and not on what God is doing. Uh, it's not about that. It's about what God is doing and understanding that and coming into alignment with that. 
That needs to be a huge guiding factor in any church making a decision. So how do we know what God's agenda and plan is? Well, that's the next point. Number two. Second key consideration. What does the Bible teach? <laughs> that was a, another consideration that I see here. That comes out verses 15 through 18. After the debate, Peter, after Peter got them to that key consideration of what's God doing, then James, the leader of the church at Jerusalem then, he took them to the scriptures. And what he is saying there, verses 15 to 18, is that the fact that Gentiles are coming to God, and God is clearly accepting them, that is consistent with the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures, and that's that time that's all they had was the Old Testament that's just when they talked about the scriptures that's what they referred to the Old Testament and in fact James says it was predicted in the Old Testament that the time would come when God would call a people for his name from the Gentiles and then James quotes from the Old Testament prophet Amos to show that but that prediction is given many times in the Old Testament not just Peter shows that Amos passage, but it gets there many times in the Old Testament. So really the Jews shouldn't have been surprised that there are Gentiles coming to God as they responded to the gospel message. That always was God's plan. All along, the Old Testament thought that all along. And so they were observing what God was doing and accepting the Gentiles on the basis of their faith alone, and that was confirmed by the fact that their scriptures teach that this was, in fact, God's plan all along. So that was another key consideration in making this decision. What does the Bible teach? What God is doing and what the Bible teaches will always be in agreement. It's a key thing we need to remember. <laughs> what God is doing and what the Bible teaches will always be in agreement. And so when James so ably summed it up and put those two together the decision that needed to be made became pretty obvious. And this consideration needs to be key in the decisions that church, we the church face. What does the Bible teach? Our decisions had better be consistent with the teachings of the Bible or we will be going in a direction that is away from God and his plan instead of going with God and his plan. So, as you think that through then, that requires that the people involved in making the decision are people who know what the Bible says and teaches, people who are spirit-filled so they can understand and discern the teaching of the Bible in relation to the decision that's before them. I'd just like to make a, take a moment to just to put those two guidelines together. Uh, what is God clearly doing? What does the Bible teach? Those are important because the decision needs to be the decision God would have us make. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the one who gives direction because he's the head. We are his body. We are to follow his direction. This is important. I've been a pastor of this church for a few years, so I think I'm... Hopefully I'm safe to say this without getting fired. But <laughs> the church is not a democracy. The church is not a democracy. We in our culture sometimes get that mixed up. Our nation is a democracy. Our political 
systems, our democracies. That's all we know from the outside world. From national governments and elections, right down to local town and municipal governments, and right down even to boards and committees on volunteer organizations. Democracies, that's how they function. They function as democracies. Discuss, debate, whatever, take a vote, majority wins. Democracy. And it's so easy to bring that thinking into the running of the church. The church is not intended to be a democracy. Jesus is the head of the church. He gives the direction. So when we get together to make a decision, our thinking needs to be, what does Jesus want us to do? What is his direction to us? It doesn't matter what I think or you think or whatever, as far as our personal preference and comfort level and all that is. That doesn't matter. What does Jesus want us to do? All our discussions need to be to that end, coming to an understanding of what Jesus is telling us to do. That's the purpose of the discussions. To come to an understanding of what Jesus wants us to do. It isn't about me trying to convince and sway the rest to conform to my personal opinion or to my feeling or to my comfort level. So that when the vote happens, I can sway enough people on my side to get my way and the majority wins, right? That's democracy. But the problem is that the church... With, with doing that in the church is that the majority is not always right. Jesus is king. Church is a monarchy, if you like. Jesus is the king. He's the head. He gives the directions and the orders. And the purpose of our discussions is to come to an understanding of what Jesus is telling us to do. It may not be what I want or what I'm comfortable with. Because what I want and what I'm comfortable with may not be consistent with what God is doing or what the Bible says. Kind of like the Jews here in this passage. They didn't like this direction of these Gentiles coming in without all willy-nilly, with no rules, no whatever. They didn't like, that was very uncomfortable for them. But what is God telling them to do? What does Jesus say? So we need to take as a key consideration what does the Bible teach? First one, what's God doing? Secondly, what does the Bible teach? Thirdly, how do we handle the application of the decision wisely? How do we handle the application of the decision wisely? This comes out in the letter that was written to the church at Antioch, outlining the decision that was made. We've already touched on it. The decision was that, no, the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised to be saved. They do not have to obey those ceremonial and ritualistic laws of Moses to be saved. Saved on the basis of their faith alone. But all needed to be mindful and respectful of others and take where they are at into consideration. That's also a biblical teaching, to put others ahead of ourselves. That's biblical. Regard others as more important than ourselves not about my personal rights. It's about many times putting aside my rights for the betterment of others. So that takes to be taken into consideration as well. That's a biblical teaching. To put others ahead of ourselves. Be gracious to them. So given the strong feelings involved here, 
for the betterment of the fellowship of the church and for them going forward in unity, the Gentile Christians were asked to stay away from some of those things that the Jewish Christians found particularly offensive and would hinder the fellowship and the love and the unity in this congregation, in this church. It would take a bit of time for them to wrap their minds around how things had changed with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so they came to the decision, and they also handled the application of the decision with wisdom. And that's also a key guiding principle for us as a church, or any church, in making decisions. It's vitally important that we make the right decision. But we also need to apply wisdom in applying that decision and putting that decision into practice. If it is something that people on both sides have strong feelings about, the decision is that, that is to come may be the right decision, but will likely not be what some would want. So how can we implement the decision in a way that will ease the process for those who are uncomfortable with it? They need to be treated with respect and grace and love, and even if they're wrong. So that's where wisdom comes in. And so the apostles and elders here in Jerusalem who worked through the issue and came to realize what God was telling them to do, they left us a very good example and guideline in applying and implementing that decision with wisdom. And we need to follow that. So therefore we see from this passage the key consideration, considerations that need to apply in making important decisions as a church. They are, number one, what's God clearly doing? What's his plan? What's his agenda? Better get in line with that. Number two, what does the Bible teach? That's what tells us what God's plan is. And number three, how do we handle the application of the decision wisely? So let's remember these truths whenever we as a church need to make an important decision. I know the sermon here this morning is geared more to us as a church family than to any of us individuals and the personal struggles we may be facing right now and going through in our personal relationship with God. But the key application from this for each Christian in the church is to make sure we're getting to know the Bible and what it teaches and that we as individuals are filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit as opposed to being controlled by our personal feelings and comfort levels and emotions. That's what I need to do. That's what struck me personally as I went through this that I felt was the application for me personally. It's very easy when you feel strongly about something and emotions get running that all of a sudden, oh, suddenly emotions are king. Not Jesus isn't king anymore. It's my emotions are king. That's easy. To, I, I've, I've done that many times. So that was I saw was the application for me personally. What it is for you, encourage us all to. Maybe you're in the same boat as me, <laughs> but let's open ourselves to what the truth of God's word is. So let's take our moment of silence as we do every Sunday, and just ask that question in your own heart, in your own soul. What is God saying to me through this? this morning. I'll give you a few moments.
Amen. Music team, please. Let's stand and sing our final song together.
Thank you for your singing. <laughs>